Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at Job 19. This is one of, maybe, I, do I say this all the time? It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Uh, maybe pastors say that about every, but this really is up there. It's one of my uh, dearest passages to me. I've been very excited uh, to, to look at it with you um, from Job 19. If you haven't read through Job and come across this passage, then I'm, I'm excited that you get to hear it for the first time. Um, this is God's word um, because he is our savior and God is life. Oh, that my words were written Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see. For myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Let's pray together. Jesus, our risen Lord, is with joy that we come before you as the King of all things, the Maker of all things. We come with joyful hearts to worship you. And yet the truth of Easter, that Jesus was dead, and then he was alive, and he is alive forevermore, is such a wonderful truth uh, that is hard for us to believe or even understand uh, the significance of it. We ask that you'd send your spirit now to be our teacher. And I pray for those uh, who are here who uh, maybe do not know what it is to have faith in Jesus, to have the hope of the gospel living inside of them. And I pray that you would give them um, ears to hear, um, eyes to see, that you would raise the dead and breathe life into us, spiritual life into us now, even as we hear your words. And so we pray that you would send your spirit to guide us and to teach us Um, The same spirit that uh, inspired Job as he said these words. And so um, we pray for your presence now in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we are uh, celebrating this morning Easter Sunday, which is uh, Easter is kind of the central belief of the Christian faith that uh, Jesus died on the cross for uh, all of our sins. And uh, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. His body rose again from the dead. And then actually, uh, Christians say that his body went into heaven and his body is still alive in heaven. And actually, that's not just, you know, that our church believes that. That's, that's all Christians agree that um, that's the central belief of Christians, is that Jesus' body is alive and is still alive in heaven. Now, it's kind of an odd belief. His body is alive and it's in heaven and... Um, uh, it's kind of a strange thing because most of us, when we think about your spiritual life, you think about God, the main things that you think about, what, what's central to spirituality is that you love people, that you have a sense of inner contentment and peace, that maybe you have some meaning and purpose to your life. You'd think that, that, you know, and that that's what would be the heart of what spirituality or what Christianity would be about, and yet it's not. It's about some guy 2,000 years ago who died, and everyone thought, a bunch of people thought that he was still alive, and uh, he was alive after it. And um, it doesn't seem to say anything about us loving each other, about my inner peace and my personal fulfillment in my life. And, um, but what I want to argue this morning is that underneath all of those things that we look for in spirituality, loving people, inner peace, 
contentment, purpose. There are deep and profound questions about who we are and what the world is all about. Why is this world here? Who is God? Who started the world? What's he like if there is a God? And why, the, you know, on the one hand, I look at the world and I say it's so profoundly beautiful. I mean, we look outside and it's so gorgeous. There's these colors and these birds singing. We say, this is, on the one hand, we say it's such a good world. And on the other hand, uh, we've ex- many of us have experienced deep misery. And we know that in, in many parts of the world, people are experiencing injustice and violence and suffering. And we say, on the one hand, it seems like such a good world. And on the other hand, it seems like such a bad world. What is it? it, it it's such a terrible world to live in. And there's deep questions that we have about who am I, who is God, where am I going, what is life about, what is the purpose of my life, and these more profound questions are what underlie what makes us loving people, what makes us have inner peace. Those are just byproducts of these deeper questions. And um, so what I want to do this morning is show you um, the the reason that the resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened 2,000 years ago is the central uh, central belief in Christianity is because that event actually speaks to all these questions. You know, as a Christian might say that Christians believe we're living in a story. What is this world that we're living in? You're, it's a story that you're living in. You're all characters, and God's the author, and you're living in it. And the reason why the resurrection is the most important part is because it's the key event in the story. It's that when the hero showed up, God did something, he acted, and it's where the, when the whole story changed and everything changed. And so I want to show you that the resurrection is actually the master key that unlocks all the mystery boxes about life. It is the answer to the riddle of the world. And the way I want to show you that is by um, looking at this little passage of scripture tucked away in Job 19... <laughs> The Old Testament, Job 19, there's this little passage. If you aren't familiar with the, uh, the book of Job, Job is a story about a guy named Job um, who basically had everything. He, uh, he was very wealthy. He was a very successful businessman. He had lots of children. They were all uh, very good looking, and uh, everyone respected him. He cared for the poor. He was very generous. He cared for his employees well. Everyone would say, on all accounts, this is a good guy. And at the beginning of the book of Job, there's this, uh, this scene where you go into heaven, and we get a little peek into heaven, and the devil says to God, he says, well, you know, Job, the only reason Job's such a good guy is because he has everything. He's rich, he has beautiful kids, he's got all these cows and sheep and everything, and that's the only reason uh, that Job loves you. You take away all that stuff, and Job's going to curse you, God. And so God says, okay, tell you what, take it all from him. Take the family take the riches, and actually, he even goes and further on and says, you can actually hurt his body. And he puts plagues on Job and uh, boils all of his body in disease and takes everything, ultimate tragedy, he puts on Job. And the whole bulk of the book of Job is Job having this conversation with his friends about why is all this happening to him. And they're having this argument. They're wrestling with all these questions. Where is God? Why is there misery in this world? All these deep, profound struggles that many of us have questions uh, for God about. And actually, most of the book of Job, Job is arguing that uh, God's a murderer. God has murdered me, and I want a trial. I want to take God to trial. I I want my case to be heard before God. Um, because I think I'm suffering innocently. I'm innocent. All his friends say, no, you must have sinned in some way. That's why you're suffering. He says, no, I want a trial. But what's interesting, as the story goes along, and you hear Job, he's wrestling with God. Why would God do this? Why would God bring such profound tragedy on me? 
You don't see Job slipping into a hopelessness, into a darkness and despair that there is no God. You get these little glimpses where he goes back and he begins to grab hold of that hope that he's always stood for, that God really is true and God really is good. And there are these little glimpses of it that pop out. And this passage is one of those glimpses. While Job is in all his misery, he sings this song. And you see at the heart of that song, verse 26, Job cries out, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. In my flesh I shall see God. What Job says in the middle of his misery, the answer that he has, the only hope that he has, is resurrection. His body will come alive again. And that that hope of Easter for Job was the answer to the riddle of life. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you how that little glimmer of hope that Job has, uh, the hope of Easter, answers the deepest questions of our lives. And there, um, in particular, there are four of these deepest questions that I want to answer. First, Easter answers the question of judgment. Second, Easter answers the question of truth. Third, Easter answers the question of suffering. And fourth, Easter answers the question of hope. Judgment. Truth, suffering, and hope. Okay? The first of these, uh, which is probably the least obvious. Um, oops, do I have a little water here? Sorry, one second. Um, the first of those questions, I think, is the least obvious, which is Easter answers the question of judgment. Now, what do I mean by that? The question of judgment. Now, you know, for most people, when they hear that word, you know, you come into church or you're reading in the Bible, and the judgment, it has this kind of grinding effect on you. You say, ah, I'm going to pretend this part's not here. We're talking about God being a judge. And, uh, And actually, many people in our culture would say, Christians who believe that God is a judge, it's such a primitive idea. This is from uh, way back before the modern world, before we became enlightened and knowledgeable people. The Christians, you know, people thought that God was this angry judge that we're all going to have to stand before and give an account and, um, to him about our life. And uh, they're very turned off by that idea. But the reality is that all of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we would admit that we are all deeply hungry to be judged. We want to be judged. Uh, We want um, somewhere down in our genetic code, in our gray matter, we have a longing for someone to look on us and make a pronouncement about our life, right? You want someone to tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm good, right? That's why, you know, I've said this before. You look at all our reality TV shows. They're all, you go do something and you got a panel of judges and you stand before them and they tell you whether you're okay or not. There's something about us that we um, are hungry for judgment. We're looking for it. And if you don't think that you're hungry for someone to make a verdict on your life, you look at how the thing that's most offensive to us about other people is when other people are judgmental, right? For some reason, when people are judgmental, that really gets under our skin. It's really touching something deep down in us. And actually, the thing that we both long for more than anything and fear more than anything is for someone to look on us and make a verdict, make a pronouncement on our life. What am I worth? Am I good? Am I righteous? Am I innocent? Am I beloved? This is a pronouncement um, that we're all hungry for. We all have an understanding that there's a standard in our life that we are trying to meet. And um, the reason for this is because we have been made to be judged by God. To stand before him and give an account for our life. 
And so no matter how hard you try to push it out of your mind, there's always going to be this nagging reality of judgment. You'll never be able to escape it. And, um, and so this is a deep question of our life. And of course, that's a big question in the book of Job, right? Job's saying, I want a trial. <laughs> I want to stand before God, and I want, I want, someone to, I want God to say whether I'm innocent or I'm, I'm guilty. And, um, and that's kind of, if you look at verse 23 of this passage that we're talking about, that's essentially what he's saying here. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Actually, what he's talking about there is he says, listen, I want to make my case before God. And I, want to, I need to write down the case, and I want to engrave it in stone so that when judgment comes, there's a clear case, and he can read it, and he can make a pronouncement on, on, on who I am. But the writing, the writing of his case is not enough. Look at what he says right after that. These strange, haunting words. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Somehow, uh, Job thinks that on the day when he stands before God, he's going to have some redeemer, some advocate. It's like a lawyer who is actually going to speak for him to God and make his case to God for him. And he says, I'm looking forward to that day. And when he makes my case for me, when that redeemer makes my case for me, God is going to pronounce me innocent. And this, there's this strange thing now. This is probably the weirdest part of the sermon. I don't really understand it. But um, there's, in the Bible, there's some connection between God making his pronouncement that we're innocent, that we're loved, that he approves of us, and our bodies coming back to life. When God says, you are righteous, I approve of you, your body comes alive. Somehow those two things come together. And actually, and that's what Job's hoping for here. And actually, that's what happens in the gospel, right? You look at Jesus. What happens with Jesus? Jesus is this innocent man who goes and the, the, uh, the you know, Roman authorities crucify him. And he's dead and he was killed innocently. And then throughout the Bible, it says when God raised him from the dead, God was showing that Jesus is innocent. He's passed the test. God loves him. And he's approved of him. And when God makes his approval on someone, his body comes alive. And um, that's kind of a, a, a strange um, a strange thing, but I, I think that some of us have some sense of that, just in, on a smaller scale in our own life, when someone encourages you. You know, when someone says to you, you know, what you did for me, that, was, that really changed my life. Or, or when you listened to me that one time, or when you came over and cared for me, or listened to me when I was, or you were with me when I was suffering, and someone says to you, uh, you really mean something to me. Those words, that pronouncement, that verdict breathes new life into your body. That is a small taste of when God's verdict comes. It, it, it actually produces life in our bodies. Okay, now this is, this is I know this is strange, but um, let me just uh, stay with me here because um, uh, one of the issues then, part of the reason that we are uncomfortable with the idea of God as a judge is because we say, well, what if I stand before God and give an account, you know, what if I'm not a good person? What's, what's God going to think of me then? Yeah, judgment. Okay, if God said to me, yeah, you are, you are good, you are righteous, you are proved, I could see it breathing life into me. But what if he said the other way? And this is the essence of what the gospel is. This is the essence of what East, the good news of Easter is about, is that Jesus came as a man like us. And he lived the life that we should have lived. He is the good person. He lived the life. The, he met the standard that we'll never meet. And then he died the death that we should have died. He died in our place. He took the curse for us. 
So that now when we put our faith in Jesus, he shares his verdict with us. He shares his verdict with us. So my standing, when I put my faith, when I am united to Christ by faith, God's verdict, God's pronouncement on me is you are loved, you are treasured, you are beloved. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And when you receive that, what is going to happen to you is new life will come into your bodies. And um, the, the new life that came into Jesus, he will share with us. So the first question I have for you is, have you heard that verdict? Have you heard God pronounce to you, uh, you are righteous, you are approved, you are loved? Have you heard those words that, imagine if just your, uh, you know, a, a friend says that to you, how much power it has in your life. How about the words of God saying that into your life? Have you heard that? Has it penetrated into your heart? The way you receive that is by, but you say, how could he, how could he approve of me? Is because of Jesus. To believe in him. And I'll just tell you that if you don't know that verdict, if it hasn't penetrated your heart, you will spend your whole life chasing for a verdict somewhere else. You will either try to seek success and money or other people's approval or you'll, you'll try to do good things to finally assure myself that I'm a good person. You'll be desperate for someone to say to you, tell me I'm okay, tell me I'm okay, tell me I'm okay. But when God has given you his verdict, it will silence that because no voice is louder than the very judgment of God. So actually, the first thing about Easter, the first thing that Easter speaks to is the question of judgment, which many of us don't even think is a question in our life, and yet it's driving many of the things that we do as we're trying to prove that I'm a good person. And it speaks to that, okay? But the only way that it's going to have that power in our life is if we really believe that Jesus is true, right? That he really was a man. He really did die for my sins. He did, really did conquer death. That there really is a God who speaks a verdict. And so that leads to the second uh, question Easter speaks to, is that Easter answers, secondly, uh, answers the question of truth. Not just the question of judgment, but the question of truth. And you see there in verse 25, Job's language, how he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. You hear how he talks? I know that my Redeemer lives. Um, now, you know, actually, no one really knows when Job was written. There aren't a lot of cultural clues in the book. So he, this could have been written as long as 2,000 years before Jesus was even born. And, uh, and so here's Job, who is saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know there's going to be some advocate for me in, in, in heaven who stands upon the earth and his body is alive. And all Christians throughout history have read this and say, wow, Job, either 500 years or 2,000 years before Jesus, was giving a glimmer of the hope of Easter. And he has um, this certainty where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know this. I'm confident in it. I'm certain of it. I, I have assurance of this. I'll tell you, one of the things that's common in our culture is to say that um, basically there's, there's two kinds of beliefs. You know, there's faith beliefs, values, things that inspire your life. And then there's a whole other world of beliefs that are facts. You know, these are kind of scientific knowledge, that, uh, things that you're uh, very certain of. And... Um, and uh, so there's this division between these two kinds of knowledge. And um, for most people, the story of Jesus' resurrection, that his body came back to life, um, people would say, well, that, listen, this can't live in the world of fact. I mean, that, everyone knows that bodies don't come back to life. This must live in the world of faith. 
and that um, Christians can believe in this and, it, and it's inspiring to them. And um, I'm not saying it's not valuable. It's valuable. But um, I, that I, they, they just need to understand that this is something that helps my life. And, and, and I can't say that this is a fact. Like I say that gravity is a factor. It's a different. But that's not, that's not the way that Job talks. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I'm certain of this. And actually, C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis was, uh, for most of his adult li- or much of his adult life, uh, an atheist. And then he later, uh, in his early 30s, uh, became a Christian. And uh, C.S. Lewis kind of understood this, th- had this thought of this division between faith ideas and fact ideas. And, and he called them myths. You know, he said, I know, he had studied all kinds of ancient literature. And he said, you know, there's all kinds of ancient stories about uh, this dying God, you know, where the God dies and then rises again. And, you know, Christians believe that Jesus is God become a man, and then he died and then he rose again. And it's just another one of these dying God myths. And, um, and yet, as he began thinking about maybe that there really was a God, uh, he, in his autobiography about how he becomes a Christian, he shares this story, and this is what he says. Uh, he says, in early, ni- in early 1926, the hardest boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. Rum thing, he went on. All that stuff about uh, all that stuff of Fraser's about the dying God. Rum thing. It almost looks as if it had really happened once. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would uh, need to know the man who has certainly never since shown any interest in Christianity. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not, as I would still have put it, safe, where could I turn? Was there no escape? And what Lewis found out as he looked into it is he said, listen, the story of the Gospels of Jesus rising from the dead, it's not like a myth. Myths, all the ancient myths about the gods rising from the dead, no one knew when that happened or in what place. or There were no eyewitnesses to that account. But the, the stories that we have in the Gospel, there is no historian that thinks that Jesus was not a man. All historians think Jesus was a man. He was crucified uh, under Pontius Pilate. We know who Pontius Pilate was. He, we know that he was a cruel, uh, 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 you know, cruel governor, that he crucified people, that he slaughtered people. We know when Jesus died, 30 A.D. We know the city that he died in, Jerusalem. We know that there were eyewitnesses who saw it. We know that there were 500 eyewitnesses that met him after he had risen from the dead. We know that the eyewitnesses wrote down their accounts, and throughout their accounts, they put people's names throughout the accounts so that you could say, you know, I want to check this out. Well... Here's the person's name. They're still alive while these accounts are being written. This is not a fairy tale. It's actually totally different than any other myth or fairy tale there is. Because, you know, any fairy tale you say, all, fairy tales happen once upon a time in a, you know, in a land far, far away. This didn't happen once upon a time in a land far, far away. It happened in a time that we know about with eyewitnesses. And many of those eyewitnesses went to their death saying, I know that Jesus is alive, saying the th- same thing that, uh, that Job did, I know that my Redeemer lives. What that means is that this is um, the most logical explanation. As we look at how Christianity spread throughout the world and the joy that came upon the early Christians is that the tomb really was empty. And if you look into the history, you know, I I could give a whole sermon on this. If you look into the historicity of it, there's no event like this. It's not a fairy tale. It happened. It is truth. 
And uh, it's something, it, it is not um, wishful thinking. It's, um, it is a public event that happened. The resurrection is re- a real history. And, um, and for Job, he needed a certainty like that. If I'm going to place my life on this, I need to know that my Redeemer lives, and we can know that our Redeemer lives too. And the fact is that if we're going to face the world with all its suffering, and with all, um, all the, uh, the suffering that we're going to endure, that we're going to face all the hardship, we need to know, and if we're going to face it with joy and with courage, we need, we need assurance that this really happened, that we really do have this hope, that this is the truth. Has it, who is God? Is it just a guess? It's not a guess. He's acted in the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Love is indeed stronger than death, okay? But this raises a third question because the question of truth, you know, is kind of an intellectual question. Can I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? But for most people, their their problems with God actually aren't intellectual problems. They're much more um, personal problems, right? I mean, that may be the case for you. As you think about who God is, it's not so much that, that, um, you know, I'm okay with I don't understand God, but the thing for me is if there is a God, then why is life so hard? If there's a God, why is their life so hard? um, This is more of a heart question than a head question. And this is the third answer that Easter gives us. Easter answers also the question of suffering. So it answers the question of judgment, the question of truth. But it also answers the question of suffering. And as we look at the evil and suffering in the world and injustice, um, the Bible encourages us to cry out to God, to complain to God about um, the, the sad things that fl- fill our lives and the lives of people we loved and the lives of people around the world. And actually, this is very much what Job is about. But as we ask the question, why would God, if he is good and loving, make such a world like this? If God is good and he's loving and he's powerful, why would he make a world like this? Well, as you read through the book of Job, you find out the end of Job. That's what Job wants to know. And God says, what makes you think that you're you're going to be able to understand my purposes. I made the universe. <laughs> and so you should humble yourself and know that you're not going to get all the answers. And, and that, that there's, that's part of the answer, that we don't, get, we don't know the mind of God of why he made the world um, the way he did. But there's more to that, more to the answer than that, than, than just be quiet and don't ask the question. Um, because in this passage... Job's debating with his friends, well, you know, where is God? Why did God bring all this tragedy upon me? And he bursts out into this song that he clings to in his sufferings. And let me just uh, clarify one thing, you know, about Easter. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because for many people, if you ask them, what is the purpose of Easter? What, what's, why are we all here? Why, why the good news? Why the bagpipes? What, what's, and most people would say, well, the good thing about Easter is that Easter shows us that there's a reality beyond the grave. Our souls go on. When our, our body dies, our souls go on. We go on into light. There's hope after the grave. But the reality is that's not what Easter says. Christ, Christians throughout history and early on, they insisted that Jesus' soul did not go on after the grave, but that his body did. Jesus' body rose from the bed. His you know, his ears, his eyeballs, his senses, his liver, his kidneys, uh, all of that, you know, um, his teeth, his tongue, everything, his hair came alive again. Physicality. He ate food. And that's the same thing, actually, that Job speaks of here in verse 26. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Joe believes that his, the ultimate answer to suffering, if God is going to make an answer to suffering, to his suffering, it's not going to be his soul floating off to the netherworld with harps and wings. It is my body is going to be restored. My body is what's been struck down. My body is what's been hurting. My body is what makes who, me who I am. That's where all my pleasures, where all my joy is, is in my mind and my heart and my senses and my taste and my feelings. And if God is going to give me new life, he's going to give, give me new life in my body. And um, what's shocking about uh, Easter is that Christians believe that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was doing something that he is also going to do for us. That it's not just about our souls going into the light after we die, but when Jesus comes, he's going to restore the whole earth. He's going to restore the creation, and he's going to raise our bodies to be free from ailments, from depression, from sorrow, from misery, um, from cancer, from anything that kills. And at last, I'm going to become what God intended me to be. And all the suffering in the world has held me back. It's, it, it's, I haven't been able to love God. I haven't been able to serve other people. I haven't been able to do, become what I feel like there's this hint of potential in me. And yet in the resurrection, Easter is promising that all of that will be undone. And so um, when we come to the question of suffering and we say, how can there be, you know, how can God be good and all-powerful, right? If he's good... Uh, then you'd think that he wouldn't allow there to be so much suffering in the world. And if he's powerful, you'd think that he could stop the suffering in the world. How can he be both those things and let a world go on like this? And, and um, Easter answers the riddle with two things. We see in, in Easter, first of all, that God indeed loves us. So he is good. He loves us, so he's good. How do we know that God loves us? With all the suffering that's going on. If he lets all this suffering go on, how can we say that he loves us? Because he came down and he entered into the suffering himself. God didn't stay off in the other side of the universe and just watch us suffer. God became a man in Jesus Christ and suffered injustice, physical pain, abandonment, depression. Everything that we've suffered, he has felt with us. And you know that when the people that you will be most loyal to in your life are people when you're going through tragedy, when you're going through hard things, when your job's falling apart, you have no money, and there's someone who stood by you through it, what do you say? That person, I will be loyal to them. They were with me in my lowest time. God was with us in our lowest time. And so we know he loves us. So he's good. But also, God has conquered suffering. Um, That in Jesus Christ we have this certainty that there will come a day where we will be, our bodies will be freed from all sorrow and pain and we will have hearts just swelling with love and joy for God. We will praise him. And, um, and we'll finally become who we're meant to be and we will live with him for endless ages. This is the promise of Easter. It's a wild promise. Wild promise that the curse of the world of death and suffering will be undone and God has already begun it in Jesus. He's already begun it. And so we know that he has the power to conquer, and we know that he's good, and so we should trust him. And let me just tell you that if you look everywhere in the world, in every religion, in every spirituality or philosophy, you will find no answer to the question of suffering like you will find in the event of Easter. No religion, no spirituality has anything like Easter. Now you might think, well, that's very brash, Uh, that's kind of arrogant as, as a Christian to say your religion is better than us. But listen, you know, just in February, I was reading a book by a guy named Luke Ferry. Luke Ferry's a philosopher uh, at the University of Paris. He's not a Christian. He's not a believer. 
And he wrote a book called The Brief History of Thought, which is basically an overview of, of uh, philosophy throughout history, from the ancient Greeks all the way up to the modern time. And he goes through the Stoics, and he says, the, the ancient Stoics, you know, uh, they believe that you should just, you know, accept your lot in life. And he says, well, that doesn't work because that, what they ended up doing was just making a bunch of slaves who should accept their lot in life. And he says, the Buddhists, the Buddhists said, you know, you shouldn't uh, uh, form any attachments with people. Because if you have deep desires for things and you attach yourself to people, you're just gonna, it's just going to lead you to despair. And so he says, you know, the Buddha, Buddhism doesn't lead me to love people, so I can't embrace Buddhism. And then he says, uh, modern humanism, they don't believe in God, and they believe that the world is all there is, and they have no meaning for their life. And then the postmodernists don't believe in good, good or evil, and so they have no morality or ethics or any way to, to seek justice in the world, so I can't believe that. And at the end of the book, this is a guy who's not a Christian. He says, Christians invented love, and they have the answer to suffering. And I just can't believe it. He gives pages and pages of why he can't believe any other religion or philosophy. He gives one sentence to why he can't believe Christianity. I just don't believe it. And actually, I put a quote for you, page three of your bulletin. This is, this is a quote from his book, Luke Ferry. The resurrection of the flesh is the culmination of the Christian doctrine of salvation. For the Buddhist, the individual is but an illusion, something destined for disillusion and impermanence. For the Stoic... The individual self is destined to merge into the totality of the cosmos. Now listen to this. Christianity, on the contrary, promises immortality of the individual person. His soul, his body, his face, his beloved voice. As long as he is saved by the grace of God. Now listen to this last sentence. The Christian response to mortality, for believers at least is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. That is the hope of the gospel. And Luke Ferry is not even, not even a Christian. He studied every, every philosophy, every religion. He says Christianity alone promises to beat death. Jesus alone promises to beat death. And so, um, the other side to that then is that Easter gives the answer to the question of suffering. The only, the only answer you'll find. But the other side of that is then, Easter also gives the answer to the question of hope. And as we see in this passage, you know, as Job meditates on this hope that my body will be restored, complete health, complete restoration is what God is, is offering us. Um, this moves deeply into his soul. Look at, uh, look at verse 26 again. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet my, uh, my f- in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. There, a profound longing, a profound joy pulses inside of Job, even in the midst of his, su- of his suffering. And um, when you give your life to Jesus. This hope, the hope of a new world, this world being restored and made new, and you having a share in a place of it lives inside of you. It's like this new world is living inside of you and it's, it's impacting everything you do and it just and it um, charges your whole body even now with life. Jesus says you have eternal life now through him. And it is a promise that nothing, even death, can take away. No one can take away from us. 
And what this means is that the way we live now, if this is true, that um, the hope of Easter is not just that my soul floats off onto the clouds where I play harps and float around, but that my body in a renewed heaven and earth, where God will bring heaven to earth, and heaven and earth will be one place, and it's like the earth, it's like the universe is this chalice, this beautiful chalice, and that God's going to fill it with the presence of himself. He's like this wine that he's filling the chalice, and the universe will be filled with God's presence. And Job says, I'm going to see God with my eyes, and that that's our promise for endless ages to live in God's world, then what that means is there is nothing I'm going to miss out on. There is nothing, I'm going to miss out. You know, many Bellingham people, we say, gosh, there's so many mountains I want to climb. There's so many countries I want to visit. I want to go to Thailand and eat food, and I want to go to waterfalls. And I want to uh, travel around, and I want to behold all these beautiful things and praise God and thank, thank him for all these things. But I've got to work now, and I, I've got to raise children and change diapers, and I'm missing out on so much. Easter says there's nothing we'll miss out on. We have endless ages. And this world is charged with the glory of God, and God wants us to behold his glory in all things and give him thanks and have a heart full of thanksgiving and enjoy them all in his presence. And so now we can serve him. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that is our hope. Do you know where you're going? Do you have a hope or a purpose in your life, anything remotely that size, anything close to that? And now you might say, okay, man, that sounds amazing, beautiful, that's a wonderful hope. You know, but why Jesus? I mean, it seems so narrow, right? I mean, just this one guy, why can't I believe in Allah? Why can't I believe in the universe or believe in myself? Why do I have to believe in Jesus? Who else is offering this? Have you heard anyone else who is offering the resurrection of your body to live in the earth for endless ages? No one would dare to. People can promise you that you'll float into the light when you die, because anyone can promise that. But who can promise you the resurrection of your body? Only the one whose body has already been resurrected. He's already done it. And we look, it's already begun. And I can have that hope through Jesus. So let me tell you that if you're here and you wouldn't say you put your faith in Jesus, you put your hope that that's the center of your life, that's where your life is going. My life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I just want you to know that this whole promise of Easter is a gift. God doesn't want you to work for it. He doesn't want you to earn it. You don't have to be a good person in order to get it. He wants to give it to you. You receive it by faith. And he calls you this morning to receive, to believe. And if you're here uh, and you do put your faith in Jesus, you're following Jesus. I just want you to know that there's nothing you're going to miss out on. And so why should you be generous with your money and give away your money and your time to people and um, invest in people that is not as cool as going to Thailand? And um, why should you love your children and pour into them um, and and give your life away? Why should you give your life away? Because there's nothing you're going to miss out on. You can. You can risk it all. This life, the sufferings in this life and what we'll lose in this life will be just a Pin, you know, a little teeny speck compared to eternity and endless ages in God's presence. So we, we're not going to miss out on anything. And if you're here and if you're a believer, but you have not been walking with God, let me just ask you, what are the other things that you're giving your life to, that you're devoting your life to? Are they anywhere near as generous as the God that you meet in the scriptures, that you meet in Easter, who wants to love you and give you purpose? Are they failing you? Did they make you promises that they would fill you and satisfy you and you still feel empty? It's because only God will satisfy you. And let me just invite you this this morning to repentance. Turn back to God. And the question for us is, will we be humble enough? 
Will we be childlike enough to really believe that there is a God this good who would give us a future like that? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what amazing things you have planned for us. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Would this hope of the resurrection be buried deep at the depths of our souls and fill us with joy and life and purpose that we would serve you in this life in this world now and worship you as we look forward to that day when we will be in your presence. I pray for those who are here uh, who have not put their trust in you. I pray that you would give them faith. I pray that you would soften their hearts. I pray that you would turn them from a life devoted um, to themselves to a life devoted to the generous God that we meet in the Gospels who loves us and is powerful. And I pray that um, you would give us generous lives, um, that you who did not spare his own son, you have given us all things. And so would we give away our lives as well for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.